Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Home sympathy. Harness Sayadar and Sayadeen. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. guys welcome back to another episode of phantology today we are reviewing the book orluvok by benny hendrix throughout this episode i'm going to be struggling with pronunciation so i'm hoping to get some some feedback and support on that this book should be coming out orluvok should be coming out the day this episode drops so no need to wait just check it out but benny was able to get us a an advanced reading copy and so we'll be kind of going over his process as uh, an author. So yes, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Benny Hinrichs. I have been writing for 10 years or so. Um, I'm putting out my fourth fantasy novel next week, which I guess by the time you're listening to it is this week. And this book, or the Bach, is about, um, well, so the one sentence pitch is that it's about uh, it a young drug addicted shaman who has to climb down the ice cliff at the end of the world to find her dead parents. So I first heard of this book because my, my wife and I like to do, I can't remember the name of it. It's some Icelandic Christmas Eve tradition where you get everyone a book on Christmas Eve. So that's what we do on Christmas Eve. We open a book from each other. And then the idea is kind of that night we, we just get all cozy and read our books together. And she got me, um, what I believe was your first book, the again with the pronunciation, the Oneironauts. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So one thing to know about Benny here is his his vocabulary is very large, and so there's lots of words I'm not used to, and I, I struggle through, especially with pronunciation. But yeah, so I read that one, and then um, I've always been like really interested in dreaming. I love like dreaming itself, and that the Oneironauts book has to do with lucid dreaming. And so she got me that in a, in a self-guided lucid dreaming book. But after reading it, I was like, wow, this guy should be able, should uh, come onto our podcast to talk about that. And then I contacted you and I think you're like, uh, I wrote that book 10 years ago. So maybe check out a newer book. Yeah. I read, yeah. Which <laughs> yeah. By the way, the, the name of that book, I didn't make it up. It's, it's a real English word. And um, uh-huh. so astronaut, is a Greek, right? A Greek word that means star sailor, Astros mm-hmm. and Nautilus, and so Oneronaut is kind of the same deal, but Oneros means dream. Okay. So, Oneronaut, and in Oneronaut is a dream sailor. Um, dream sailor. And that is the word appellated to these, you know, lucid dreamers. So yeah, so that's uh, my introduction to you, and I think I think you went to high school with my wife, right? Your wife Emily. Yeah, Emily Passy. Oh, shout yeah, she, out, name drop. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah, um, so you kind of talked a little bit about yourself and, and about the book. If there's anything else you want to say, go ahead. If not, um, what what's it like being a self-published author? I think that's one of the, the draws to people listening to these episodes of these um, 
most of them are first time authors or which this is your third or fourth book, right? Yeah, this is, this is the fourth go around. So, um, yeah, give us, shed some light on what that process is like for you. So, um, the very first time that I published a book, it was, it was pretty bare bones and my editing and everything, like I didn't hire out an editor or anything like that because I was just like, I'm just going to put this book out. And I think that was okay for me because it's, it's all like a, it's a process, you know, like you as an author are a, a process and you're trying to essentially become a better author with each book. That's, that's kind of how I look mm. at it is like, you know, I'd rather make another book and hopefully make it better than just spend a ton of time fine tuning a single book. So with, with each release, I don't get too incredibly worried about all of like the, the little mistakes that might, you know, burden the book. I, I just kind of try and get it as good as possible and then put it out. Um, but yeah, so that first one, the first couple, I didn't hire out any editors. Um, and this one, I, my process was more intensive partially because I have a, a real job and I have um, enough cash flow to actually do, do some of these industry standard things like hire out an editor, um, which, by the way, I don't, I don't know how many of the listeners know, but there are three different types of editing. There's developmental and then copy slash line edits and then um, proofreading mm-hmm. and you can get a different editor or the same editor for each of those three stages. The developmental edits, that's before your book is really done, or you might have just a rough first draft. And that's, that's usually the priciest. And um, editors will either go by like cents per word, or they'll go by per hour. And so you just have to kind of filter through and, you know, see what, uh, what fits yeah. you, your price range better and stuff. But um, yeah, so developmental edits can, like the cheapest that I saw when I was looking for that was like two to two and a half cents per word. Um, so you can imagine if you are if you have a 100,000 word book and that's going to be at least $2,000 for a developmental edit. Yeah. But that that's like the bottom of the range and you have to consider like, do I want to get a bottom of the range editor? Which I mean, sometimes you do because it's just people getting started and they haven't built up their repertoire yet. So they can't charge the higher prices, but they're still good. So, you know, things to take into consideration. And then the copy edits or line edits, those are going to be slightly cheaper. And then a proofread is going to be slightly cheaper than that as well. And so you, you kind of have to decide uh, where, where do I want to put my money? Um, so you might be like, I'm going to do all three stages. I'm going to get a developmental editor, a copy editor, and a proofreader. Or what I, what I did on this particular one was I just did the line edits because I did I, I did a lot of pre-writing on this book. And then and my mantra is always the more you pre-write, the less you rewrite. Yeah. And, um, and then I also did like some intensive beta reading that was essentially my developmental editing process. So by the time I was done with all of the edits from the beta readers, I felt confident that if I had hired a developmental editor, it wouldn't add the value, you know, 2000 plus dollars of value right. to the book. So, so I just went with a line editor 
and he was great. Um, I got Austin Gregg was a guy that I got and um, he was very thorough in his process. Like he went through the book and left a bunch of edits and then he even printed it out and went through it by hand and then like went back and put all of his wow. uh, comments back in the document. So he went through the whole thing like three times or something and he was great. And he's, he's a uh, very understanding that anything that he suggests is a suggestion. And, um, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's me, the author that decides, yes, I want to take that suggestion or not. <laughs> and it's very funny how many times you, like I would bump up against one of his suggestions and just be like, that is utter garbage. How could you suggest such a thing? And then I'd like <laughs> keep reading the next sentence and then I go back and be like, nah, I, I should change that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, maybe there's a reason he's paid to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know who Daniel Green is? Yeah. The, the YouTuber. So, um, he just self-published a book and he was, or a novella and yeah, he was talking yeah, about it. it. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about that. He said that um, he was just talking about how important that is to get an editor because like, that's really how they, you know, you fine tune your craft. And, and I imagine a lot of it is like that. Like you're so in the weeds with, with the story and with the process and everything that any, it's hard to see what changes you might need to be made. So you need that outside person, outside expert to, to mention it. But I can imagine it be pretty like pretty slow, slow to agree with a lot of the edits where you're like, wait, but this is I wrote this, you know, this is my yeah. my baby and you want to change this. But um, I think, like you said, um, it seems like a lot of it is, you know, you just got to keep writing and it, you can't expect your your first second third or any of your books to be a perfect book you know you just have to keep writing to keep improving right definitely and i think what happens is that you form an emotional bond with your work and whenever that happens like whenever you form mm -hmm. an emotional bond to some sort of opinion then whenever somebody attacks you know your work or your opinion it feels like a direct attack on you yeah when it's not but you have this like sympathetic bond that yeah. That is like an assault on your psyche. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I've, I have not written a book. I've had ideas for books and I can't even like get to a point to write down more than the like, oh, this is a cool premise. And then just daydream about it. But yeah. I imagine after like putting in all that work of actually getting it written and beginning and end, it, you got to get a little bit attached to it emotionally. Uh, definitely. One thing that might be interesting to bring up right here is that, you know, you're talking about you've you've had ideas and then just kind of thought mm -hmm. about them. And like once you get to the once you like progress past that and get to the end of the whole writing process that you've put in like hundreds of hours into yeah. a single book and like just a thing for prospective authors to remember is that your return on investment is probably going to be pretty low, um, especially for your like first works like you shouldn't be expecting you know if you're going to break this down on like a hourly wage type basis like you're you're making poverty wages doing this yeah. so like if you're going to really be committed to this your primary drive can't be like a pecuniary interest it has to be you have to you have to have probably like a greater balance of like art based achievement based interest mm -hmm. to like actually get through a book get through publishing and get on to another one yeah. So, okay, let's, uh, let's get into the actual book or Levac. Starting with for me. So 
this book is is very influenced and inspired by Inuit peoples, if if I'm correct. That's how I interpreted yeah, yeah. it. So a lot of the the names have that vibe to them, and a lot of the like personal names, and a lot of the names of magics and titles and items do as well. How much of it? I, I tried to Google some of it, but I, I didn't get anywhere. How much of it is um, actually based in? like linguistically in that and or how much of it was you kind of looking for the same the same you know looking for the same vibe of it I guess yeah yeah going off of the the linguistic font so to say um yeah so what I drew heavily from there's a Greenlandic English and Danish dictionary online and luckily I know Danish um okay so Denmark owns Greenland right I mean Kind of funny because the Greenlandic natives are, are Inuits. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting how that all has shaken out over history. So Greenland has like a very special relationship to Denmark. Like lots of Greenlandic people will, will learn Danish in school. And actually me living over in Denmark was kind of the inspiration for writing a Greenlandic slash Inuit based culture um, because I came in contact with a lot of these Greenlanders um, and like learned you know a few vocab words from them and yeah and you know that was like a big spark of interest there and I was thinking like after a while I was like I have not read a ton of Inuit based fantasy Mm -hmm. or just you know northern American and when I say northern I mean like really northern like Canadian Alaskan native type um, fantasy in general I think there, there's definitely some stuff in the Malazan Book of the Fallen that because Stephen Erickson is from Canada and he's an anthropologist. Yeah. And so so he definitely will pull from some Inuit cultures here and there. But other than that, I, I've only read maybe like one or two books that really are like, oh, there's a there's an Inuit inspired culture. And so part of it was my exposure to Greenlanders and and then also just my exposure to fantasy and seeing like a niche that could be yeah. filled and you know seeing something that hopefully a lot of people will be interested in. Um, but yeah, so I back to the original question. There's a <laughs> Greenlandic English dictionary online. Well, Greenlandic Danish English. It's kind of a melange of of all those three. And um, yeah, so I'd go on there and um, type in words that I wanted someone's name to be reminiscent of. Okay. And then sometimes I would just calc the word directly. Yeah. And um, sometimes I would kind of alter it because I'd get to a point where I'm like, wow, literally everybody's name ends with a Q because I'm just taking these directly. <laughs> so I should probably <laughs> like, you know, alter some of these and on some level. So that's, that's where most of the names and uh, like, specific vocab words come from like the, the tusk of uh, the narwhal is called yeah it's tuwak and so and that's just directly means like horn slash narwhal horn in greenlandic cool so that, that was a direct transliteration i you know i was thinking about that there, there's a point where it gets to be more polynesian culture and i'm a little, a little more familiar with that and when they first hear them speak um i'm like wait this has got to be, this seems like it could be like Maori or something like that. Yeah, so it's, yeah. but I couldn't, I wasn't sure if that's how it was for the 
the more Inuit uh, inspired cultures as well. So that's cool to hear that you, you know, took that time to actually do some research there. Side note, the Polynesian, so there's, you know, some exposure to some, some Polynesian inspired stuff. And that I drew from, um, there's an island called Rapanui, which is where the, the Moai yeah, come East, from. Yeah, the, the Easter Island heads. Yeah. Yeah. The Easter Island heads. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's yeah. exactly what I imagined when, when I came up. Yeah. Inter- interesting little historical tidbit. Captain Cook, I think, when his crew came to that island, he had some Hawaiians on his crew, and they could just, like, converse with the people from the island. Because the languages were so similar. Yeah. Yeah, so let's dive into some of the themes of the book. Having just finished it myself, I'm going to kind of talk about what I I viewed the themes of the book to be, and then you can um, correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong. Um, I know... I know this is all, it could be uh, pretty subjective, right? You know, people get out of art what they kind of are looking for. You know, it's, it's different for everyone. But for me, I, and I wasn't sure when I was texting you my notes on this, I wasn't sure how to exactly put this into words. But the overall theme I kind of felt was this boils down to choice in realizing that no matter what is happening to you, you still have some sort of choice of how you're going to react to it, how you're going to either accept or fight against it. And, and then also how, how much responsibility plays into that. I don't know how to put that into word, but other than that, um, I I think abuse as well was another theme I saw. So as, as the author, what was your authorial intent with the themes? Yeah. So this is kind of where I was coming from with it. I have chronic pain and I've had it since I was 14, like in my head, neck and back. It, essentially, I've had a, a headache since 2007, mm-hmm. um, like every second of every day. And that that was like an event that happened to me. I got sick and I had a fever for five months and just have had the pain ever since then. And so I kind of wanted to explore the idea of you can have these like horrendous events that happen in your childhood that you did nothing to deserve. And it can take you decades to get over them if you can ever overcome them. Um, And just, and that's part of the reason. So for uh, the listeners, this is split into three acts. In act one, our main character, Orlovac, she's eight. And then in act two, she's 18. And in act three, she's 38. And my reason for doing that for like splitting this up over decades is because I wanted to show you like, you know, her getting her receiving this trauma when she's a child. And then when she's 18, you know, 10 years on, how has that affected her? You know, how, how has that affected her development and her ability to make choices and stuff like that? And then two decades later, when she's 38, like how, like it, has she been able to overcome that? Like, how has she progressed since then? Because like sometimes people, you know, they get messed up when they're kids and it just stays and it goes until they're, you know, in their 70s and then they die and they never overcame it. Yeah. So I guess to correct what I said, instead of abuse, it should be more trauma. Trauma is is the theme and how how people deal with that and how, like you said, how it can carry on into your life and affect you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And like one of the things is you can see her like really grappling with this trauma that obviously she did nothing to deserve 
but that's just how the world is, you know, like bad things happen. And mm -hmm. you, you can see her grappling with this and she doesn't quite have the tools to overcome it. And, she, and so she's like, she reaches for whatever she can to try and figure out how to get over this and, you know, gain control of her life. Yeah. There's some definite uh, like band-aid fixes or yeah. for the trauma she's felt. Whereas there are other things that are more to the source fixes. I don't know like how to really say that, but instead of just patching it up, there's things that um, are there to help her heal at the source. Cool. So what would, um, I had this question down and you may have just answered it. Uh, what would you say this book is really about? Not, you know, not like the plot wise in terms of it's about this girl who does this, but what is the overall like message that you think it carries? Yeah. So I think that the primary reason we read any fiction is for the vicarious emotional experience, you know, like maybe your mom hasn't died, but you're going to read this book to try to get as close to that experience as you can without mm -hmm. it happening. Um, and part of the reason for that is so that if that does happen to you, then you will be able to grapple with it better, you know, things like that. I mean, that's part of the reason why we, why we're drawn to like an accident, why people rubberneck when there's a crash on the road is because your brain sees that something bad has happened and it's trying to figure out like what happened, how can I avoid this? Mm -hmm. And so like, like, as far as a overall point of the book, I, I think that, you know, I want you to go on this emotional experience with Orluvac and then get to the end and hopefully receive some sort of catharsis that, you know, you could get through something really hard as well. Mm -hmm. That's true. I, I think that's a good point. The the main reason we as humans are attracted to stories is kind of to, like you said, live vicariously, but also to the, the stories that are really impactful are the ones that teaches us uh, empathy and how to, you know, connect with other people more. Like you said, we may not have these same experiences, but reading about it, someone going through um, something that you haven't gone through and then seeing how it affects them. It helps us connect with other people. That's cool. We kind of touched on this a little bit um, with the the world building in terms of the naming, but there is so much. One of one of the highlights of this book to me is the world building itself in terms of the actual world, but then the the magic involved, the uh, the, the beginning and end of the world, how they're described and how those are geographical locations with great significance there. Um, the culture itself. I don't know. So how did you go about uh, your world, world building process? Uh, was this something that you'd always kind of had ideas about in terms of the dead being frozen in ice at the end of the world or um, narwhals flying in the Aurora? <laughs> like, There's lots of cool stuff in terms of world building in this book, guys. You need to check it out. So here's, here's kind of the origin story of this book is tour.com back in 2016. They were like, Hey guys, we're doing a novella contest. We're going to um, just accept like open submissions and then we'll churn through all of this slush and we're going to publish some novellas. So I was like, well, I can write a novella. So I started brainstorming ideas for this. And my original idea was kind of like an Incan based setting. And I had this 
this vision of this girl going with like an alpaca down like into an eternal cave inside a mountain into sort of like this Incan underworld. Uh huh. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, ah, I should do like the Greenlandic Inuit thing. So then I tried to take some of those elements and flip it and apply it to a new setting. And so I originally started with like, okay, well, there'll be like this ice cave that just goes down forever. And then I thought about it more and more and I was like, ah, wouldn't it be awesome if there was just, if the world just ended, like this is an actual flat earth. Like this is because a lot of uh, more modern fantasy tries to take a, like a scientific approach to the right. building, which is very cool. And I love it. But so, you know, they will have uh, spherical planets and with actual gravity and, you know, an, an actual spherical sun that the, the planet orbits around and so forth. Um, I was like, what if we just dispensed with all of that and made a flat earth that's made completely out of ice? And at the end, there's just an ice cliff that goes down forever. And there's just an abyss after that. And an aurora just comes out of the abyss every night and narwhals are flying it. And then and that's the end of the world. And at the start of the world, what if it was the opposite and you just have a wall of water that goes up forever. And so the world is sort of like bracketed with, yeah. uh, you know, these two states of matter. And I don't know, I just kept like spinning, just kept riffing on it and just kept churning out stuff. And then, uh, so the, the narwhals, they feed on the aurora and there's, you know, the aurora is essentially made out of some inexplicable magical life force. And then hunters will ride kites up into the aurora and spear hunt these narwhals out of the sky and they fall down and then chandlers come along and set the tusks in tallow and then the shamans actually come and burn the candles and then they're able to work magic. Yeah. And there, there's a variety of things that can be done with the, the candles itself um, where like from bringing warmth to people to healing. Um, I like the aspect of burning the candle with some sort of intent in mind to like s- seek something out or also to draw something to you for hunting and, and things like that. Right a divination type yeah um and i think like you said um there is a lot of modern fantasy now where like the physics of the setting is very is very realistic um we talk about like a song of ice and fire um even though it's a fantastical setting and you have white walkers at the at the north pole and dragons and these seemingly um the seasons seem to be part of this like magical aspect of it but it's also done very mathematically almost in a song of ice and fire where it could be like oh this is a planet with just an irregular wobble to its um rotation or also brandon sanderson i think is very well known for this for having magic but also it being very science scienceified <laughs> and then also there being actual planets whereas with orlovac it's much more it has this feeling of a, it's like a, a myth that's being passed down um, in terms of, you know, you hear myths of ancient peoples and some of the, like the stuff just doesn't make sense in terms of how we understand the world to be now, but it's this mystical, magical era. Um, so it has this like legendary mythos feel to it where, yes, there's just, like you said, the end of the world and it's just, nothingness you don't fall until you hit anything you're just 
just fall. You just fall into annihilation. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a really cool aspect of it. Um, let's yeah, let's get dive into the magic more because I guess, what was your inspiration for the magic? I, I feel like there's, it reminded me of, of some things, but I want to hear what your um, inspiration for that was. Yeah. So, I mean, one of my main inspirations was just trying to look at like Inuit culture and worldview and figure out, you know, how did they view their shamans and um, their, like, what was their theology in general? And so they are animists, um, which means they believe that like everything has a little spirit in them. And one thing you may have noticed in the book is that it never directly references a soul as like part of your body. It always says spirit um, mm-hmm. because the the Inuits believe that you have name, body, and spirit. And those are like the three parts that make up a person. And so like everything in here has name, body, and spirit. And if one of those three things dies, then the, the other two like disappear as well. So I, I kind of was looking into those types of things and I would apply them, but also, as I said, looking into, you know, what what were their ideas of the capabilities of their shamans or uh, the, the word is angakuk, and uh, which that's the plural where you end with a T, but okay. angakuk is uh, the singular. You know? I, decided, I decided to use the Inuit plurals in the book with, where you end with a T. Yeah. I don't know. Seem like it's cool. Time. Yeah. Yeah. A, a um, lot of these words, honestly, I will, I would, wouldn't even like sound them out in my mind. I would just look okay. at them like, okay, I know it's basically, this is a, like a glyph that means this. I'm not even going to yeah. try to pronounce it. Like this is the one that starts with an A and ends with a Q. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, are narwhals from what you saw, are they, do they have significance in, the cultures you're researching or is that a, an original creation um th- that was mostly my um idea and part of that was because i wanted to have like some real some extra invocation of this is a very arctic setting um, yeah and obviously that's the you know the only natural territory of the narwhal so hopefully people cue into that pretty easy. So that, that was, that was part of the reason that I chose that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here we're th- like, this is like the the marker for where I should put myself in terms yeah. of setting. Yeah. Well, you got me Wikipedia um, narwhals for, for a couple days. I'd be in bed at night. Like what even is a narwhal? I have to like, look it up. I'm like, Oh, okay. So it's, it's, I think it's a porpoise. And then according to Wikipedia, the horn isn't a horn. It's a tooth. Right. Right. which you, you say in there, you call it the crooked tooth sometimes or, or something like that. And then just reading about how it just like pierces through their lip. And like the biology of that is crazy that it's not like, I don't know, it's not like a, an antler or something that it just, you know, grows from the head, but this is kind of a violent way to have a horn. And if I remember right, people aren't exactly sure why in real life, why narwhals have um, horn or why their teeth what their teeth are used for, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Another interesting thing is there's a, a rare condition where they, they will have tusks on both sides that come through. Yeah. And so occasionally you will get a double horned narwhal, mm-hmm. so to say. Um, 
but it's it's just like two tusks, kind of like an elephant, and it just like yeah, bust, bust through the top of their head. It's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Wild. Another interesting yeah. fact: the official throne of Denmark is made out of narwhal tusks. Wow. Or alicorn is it is also alicorn. To. Yeah, that's another. Cool but word. of course, when they made it in the 1600s or whatever, they told everybody it was unicorn horn. Of course, yeah, <laughs> more magical. Oh, I didn't even think about that, but that's like a that's a reference there. Like, I guess to me, the reason it felt so familiar to have this horn be a magical thing is because of, like, in a lot of medi- medieval uh, fantasy and mythos, unicorn horns have magical properties to them. I didn't even make that connection until just now, but it's the unicorn of the North. Yeah. Yeah, man. Just, just like that scene with, uh, let's see if I remember it. Like, I know like it's exactly what you said. It starts with a P there's two A's an R and it ends in a Q. I think Parsivok was yeah, that his name? Parsisok. Oh, Parsisok. Yeah, um, is the Q, is a Q like a, a guttural, um, yeah, so I don't know if you've ever looked at like Arabic, for example. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's the same. It's like as far back. So make a K, but as far back in your throat yeah. as you can. So they this have K's a K and a Q. As an amateur lover of linguistics, so the K is like a velar stop, right? And so this yeah. would be a, a guttural stop. I, th- I think so. The Q. I don't know yeah. if I'm saying it right, but. Like like the word Quran is like. You say it like Quran. Yeah, you know, it's like all the way back in your throat, and so it's the same with all of the cues in this book. Like, yeah. Thank you in Greenlandic is Q U J A N O Q or something like that. And it's nice. Well, anyways, Parsisok. That's how I'm going to say it. Um, when we get his first introduction of um, getting ready to go on the hunt for the narwhal, and he's got his kite. I imagine him kind of like kiteboarding up. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, to go hunt the the narwhal that are just kind of like floating in this spiral flying up with the, the Aurora. Super cool. The, the imagery there at, at one point when I was reading, I made a note, I was, it was before. And again, I don't really want to spoil much of the book because um, like the idea of this is to get people to read it. So I don't <laughs> like ruin that, but before the second half of the book, which expands the world quite a bit, I was like, there's that wall of water at the end of the world is this, are they maybe the narwhals are flying, but what if they're just underwater the whole time? Like, and then that wall of water is into our world. And this is like this underwater, underwater, but like, it's actually just sea world. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So that's what I was thinking, which I was totally off base guys, but kind of close. So you got to read it to find out. But, um, yeah, I just, I remember I was looking at my notes here and I made a note, I'm like, is this in our world? Question mark. <laughs> but, um, cool. Yeah. Um, let's get down to the characters. Um, so we really have um, a pretty tight cast of characters. There's, I don't know how many, like Orlovak is for sure the main character. And then there's a couple side characters that have a bigger role like Parsisok and then Nalor and then the king at the beginning of the world who yeah. starts with a Q and has M's in it. Not even going yeah. <laughs> to attempt that one either. You can still call him Kumu. Kumu. Yeah, Kumu. For me, I think Parsisok, or Luvak, yeah, was one of my favorites. Just, I mean, she's the main character. The, the story's about her. But Parsisok and then Nalor had such interesting, like the way you did their backstories was done so well. 
to see them grow from, again, like this, these themes of trauma where you see what happened to them in their past that put them into the position they are now in the, at the present of the book and just seeing how that plays out and how some people change for the better almost due to this trauma and other people change for the worse and how they still do good and bad regardless. I guess who would be your favorite character overall? And then who is your favorite character to write for? Hmm. I think, well, let me just quickly say for the listeners that, um, so I told you it's in three parts. And so each part, Orluvak is the main character, but there is a deuteragonist that has chapters. So part one, it's this dude named Parsi Sok, and then which, who's been mentioned. And then part two, we have... Nalor, who's also been mentioned in part three, is another character. And um, and each of these are supposed to add to the world, but also to Orluvok's story. So my favorite character, I think on some level it might be Nalor, just because mm-hmm. he's, I don't know, like when you read him, you, you don't really know what the crap is going on with him. And you can tell there's something devious and you really want to find out his mysteries and favorite to write, I think, uh, well, this is on some level a spoiler, but Ariki Haka'atu, uh-huh. um, who he's just, he's just a fun guy to write because he's, uh, he's kind of like jovial, but you can perhaps sense that he has some fierceness behind him, but he, he doesn't really put that on display when he's interacting with people, but you can like sense that he has some lethality. He's the type of person who'd be, you'd be laughing with one minute and the next minute you could offend him and he would kill you while still laughing at yeah. your previous, like, oh, we've, we've had a good time, but I need to kill you now kind of person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the story is framed in such a cool way. And it really, I think, um, accentuates these themes of trauma and how to like deal with them to where Orlovak is like the main character, but a lot of the plot, she's almost in a passive role in it that makes sense she's not really she does make huge decisions that affect the plot but it's almost like that she's in someone else's story and just trying to survive if that makes sense without going into spoilers yeah and I thought that aspect was really cool because you see a lot of the side characters for this reason have really good arcs to themselves of um, them achieving their goals while she also achieves her goals and it makes for this interesting kind of twisting of narratives in order to like, it's kind of like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> if you're ever into Seinfeld, how there's like the A plot and the B plot and maybe a C plot. And then at the end of the episode, all the plots kind of just come together and resolve in unison. And I think that was really well done with, especially with Nalor and um, or Lavak specifically. And then also Parsisak is one of those characters where he, he just, he just needs a hug. Like I would love to just go to, the end of the world, spend some time with him, you know, give him a hug for all the good he's trying to do. Give him a couple candles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one question that I, oh, actually, let me make a comment about that first. Um, yeah, it's, it's my belief that every character that has screen time, or I guess page time in a book should have their own arc. Yeah. And, because, I mean, I've read books where you, you have a character and they kind of have plot that's moving forward, 
but they don't ever climax in that book, you know, and the author is like saving their climax for the next book. And that always has annoyed me. Um, so when, whenever I'm writing, I try to get like a climax for each character for every book. Mm-hmm. I think it was really well done. And like I said, especially for the Nalor character and Orluvok together, I liked how their plots were intertwined and yet their, um, their growth was, were like independent of each other. Like it wasn't like she needed him to grow to achieve her growth and he didn't really need her to achieve his growth and a, I mean, they're part of each other's plots, but you know what I mean? It's not like that was like their core personality and their core, um, individuality wasn't dependent on that but at the same time their plots were very well intertwined together one thing that i i was sort of curious is um there are two parts in the book that are written in poetic verse which is there's the climax of part two and the climax of part uh-huh. three are both just these sections of narrative poetry so it's it's not like the J.R. tolkien where it just breaks off and it's like here's you know, 10 verses. Here's some songs of elves and about the moon and stars. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, we're just going to keep telling the story, but then it starts to pick up a rhythm. And like those, those parts took so long to write. And I know that some people will appreciate them, but I don't know how much like appeal, how much, how broad the appeal is of those parts. Mm -hmm. So like a question, I guess, from me to you is like, when you hit those parts, (laughs) did you, even notice that it was in poetic meter did you like try to read them out loud was it annoying was it like yeah so i the first time so at the end of part two i guess that one i was like this feels like is it feels like there's a rhythm to it i wasn't super keyed into it so i wasn't sure then but the end part for sure i noticed the the climax of part three and i think it added i think it gave weight to the the antagonist and his, when he really comes out to to basically battle and be this big threat, I thought it added a lot of weight to that. It made it kind of, I'm imagining like when the big bad guy of some show comes out and you hear the, what are those like three notes that are like played in every like ominous thing, the Deus Or I was thinking like the beginning of um, The Shining, if you've seen that. There's some, I can't, man, I'm like ruining this, but there's like, I don't know, just as like ominous, like boom, 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 or something like that. Yeah, I felt yeah, like yeah. what's going, going on with the, um, with that poetic rhythm at, at that part. So I, I don't really, I like picked it up earlier, but I wasn't really sure where, and I wasn't sure if I was correct in picking it up at the end of part two, like you said, in a part three for sure. And I thought it, it um, added to the intensity of that that ending yeah that that was a really cool part that um when you guys read the book whoever's listening um you should key into that and be ready and let us know how how you guys take it to me like i said i thought it was really a really cool way to kind of build up tension for this climatic climactic battle at the end yeah so the audiobook is getting recorded right now and i'm just like oh cool really excited to hear how that part turns out i've talked with the narrator and kind of tried to give some instruction on how those specific parts should be. Yeah. Up. So how did you, and I didn't even know you're doing the audiobook version of it. How did that come to be? What was that process like? 
So that one is actually probably simpler for me than a lot of people. My little brother is a voice actor. I shouldn't say little. He's like taller than me and he has a lower, lower voice than me. But he <laughs> he has like a professional sound booth Ooh. and everything. And and he has a, he has a very like uh, a somber tone when he reads. So I was like, this dude's perfect for yeah. <laughs> for my dark fantasy book. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, that's exciting to have uh, an audiobook come out with it. I guess that kind of leads to the, this next part. How, like, where can people find the book? Um, yeah. I know you have for sure a digital copy that's that'll be available. You can, I looked for it on Amazon and it's there. You can't purchase it now, obviously, but I think you should be able to purchase it on Amazon, right? Once it's available. Yes. So how Amazon works is you can't, well, I guess maybe if you're like an advanced author and have some mm-hmm. deal with them, you can. But for most people, you cannot put pre-orders for your like physical book. I don't know why. But oh. You can do pre-orders for the ebook. And okay. So basically, you can't order the physical book until the day it goes live, which I, I don't know exactly why that's their policy because I don't think it adds too much burden to the system for people to... yeah pre-order a book i don't know man but um yeah so currently well and i guess by the time people are listening to this this will be irrelevant but pre-orders are up uh, for the ebook but if you want the physical in specific oh another thing that people you know new authors might be interested in is making the ebook i used vellum which is a software unfortunately it's only available on mac but if you don't have a Mac, then I guess you could pay for like Mac Cloud or whatever it's called. Um, mm-hmm. So you can like portal into some Mac in the cloud. And it's very, very simple to do all the for it. So they, you can do formatting for your print book and your ebook. I just like dropped my Microsoft Word document in there. And it took maybe an hour of work after that to get it to the point where it was like, okay, done. Cool. Just getting like the the line breaks where you want it and stuff like that. Right, right. And and getting all the sections to line up how I want them to and adding some pictures. Um, so like in the in the book, and of course listeners won't be able to see this, but I'll just flash this to the camera. Uh, so you see at the start of each chapter, I have the chapter heading, which by the way, hired some Russian tattoo artist to do those. So it's kind of fun. That... Um, yeah. That's cool. That's like a perfect use. Yeah. I was, I was like, how do I find, how do I find somebody to do the chapter headings? And I was like, Oh, tattoo artists. They, they have like the exact art style that I need. Yeah. So yeah, I just went on Fiverr. It's like 150 bucks for all three of them. So that's cool. Not too bad, but yeah. Um, so those pictures, okay. I'm very frustrated, but the, the Amazon Kindle files, they flatten all images. So I was really trying to get them to have a transparent background because if people read on dark mode on their yeah. e-reader, then it's just like the picture with a giant white background. And it like, if, especially if you're like reading at night, it just blasts your eyes. Yeah. I am one of those. I read the whole thing. Um, we like the, the arc you sent was an ebook and I always read Kindle on the black and white yeah. reversed. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, if you pick up the ebook, the 
the like official Amazon one. It has all these yeah. pictures in it now, but you just can't do transparent background. It just flattens all the images. So that's weird. I spent a lot of time trying to get pings in there and just, yeah. Even once you upload it to Amazon, like if you somehow get pings in your in your file, it will flatten convert it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's just like a that's too sad bad word of caution to <laughs> any authors out there. I mean, maybe they'll update it in the future, but for now, don't waste your time trying to get like uh, <laughs> dark mode friendly pictures in there. So so you're you're gonna have an ebook. So the ebook should be available now. The the physical copy should be available now as as in now when this episode goes live. When can we expect the audiobook to be available? Yeah, so the audiobook, the recording should be finished decently soon. And then I of course have to go through it and find, you know, any aberrations and then send back for yeah. corrections. And I don't know exactly how long that back and forth with, will take because I haven't iterated on that ever. Mm-hmm. But you know, once that once the once the bow is tied on that package, then you ship it off to Amazon to to ACX, and they take like five thousand years to approve it. And okay, and, and then once it's approved, they just put it live. You don't have a ton of control over the audio. It'll be on Audible though, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I have looked into because there there are definitely more options than just doing one hundred percent Amazon. And yeah. I have looked into that and for both um, ebook, uh, physical, and audio, audio. There's like multiple options you can do. And for, for me at this time, I don't see enough of a return on investment to put it out on all channels. They, they have the market pretty cornered yeah. on all, all things books. Yeah. So, I mean, perhaps it, if, if I end up, you know, getting bigger, then I will probably expand. Um, yeah. But for now. I mean, do you know Evan Winter, Rage of Dragons? Yeah. 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 He was saying that, I mean, I don't know what he does now, but he was saying that for a number of years, he was 100% Amazon. And, you know, he's doing for like, that reason. Yeah. And he's, he's doing like over $10,000 in sales a month. Like, and he's 100% still, Amazon. So, yeah. Yeah. Still. Yeah. We, uh, Fantology, the the actually origin of Fantology was first. We were thinking of like how cool would it be to have some like a not really a Netflix of books, but a, more of a Hulu or a Spotify where you could rent these books for free because we get a lot of our books through libraries, um, mm-hmm. public libraries. I don't know how many if you've done that or how many of our listeners, but if you get a library card, you can download an app and just check out eBooks and audiobooks that way, and it's free and automatically returns. It's awesome. So we're like, how cool would it be if you could do that? Just like get books and then you just, there's like a freemium model. You know, you can listen to ads, but then you don't have to pay for the book or you have pop-up ads if you're doing the ebook. And we're like looking into it. We just looked into it a little bit. We're like, dang, Amazon has the rights to like all these things. And like, like it's so hard to find any publisher who not isn't like dealing with a huge business like that in terms yeah. of rights to distribute books and stuff, but. Yeah. But okay, so so we'll need to wait a little bit for the audiobook, but that's oh, fine. Yeah, Be- one one last detail on the audiobook yeah. is that it from the time you submit it, it can take two or three months for them to go through the entire entire approval process. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully it'll take less long since my brother has like all this, you know, the professional pipeline set up to record everything. Hopefully there aren't like any blemishes on it or something that they're rejecting it for. So 
Yeah. You don't know until it happens. But uh, yeah, keep us posted on that. Um, and I'm sure can, I'm sure you'll make you an announcement. A, yeah, I can send you. So I have the first chapter back. If you were interested in getting like the first chapter of the audio, I can send that to you guys. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, to, to be honest, I don't for our listeners, I don't think you guys need to be worried about when the audiobook is coming out because the artwork, the artwork of the cover of the book is so amazing. And looking at the the little details I've seen today from the chapter headings, it looks so cool. Honestly, seeing the the cover art, and there's another, there's some other art that I don't know if it's in the book or not of the of Orlovac looking over the edge of the world. Right. So actually, um, that that's another thing I should mention is that I had, uh, if you exclude the chapter headers, I had like six images that I commissioned for this book, and I spent like uh, almost three thousand dollars on. <laughs> All of these pictures, I just—they're cool. They're really awesome. Overzealous, but I'm like very pleased with how it's turned out. Um, you can view them all on my website, or if you get the ebook, they're all uh, packaged in there. Yeah. And so I got so the cover artist. I'll just flash this again for anybody who's who's watching. He is from Germany, and uh, he did it all by hand. So that's not digital at all. He like put down tape and like spray painted and pulled it off and then did all the details with pencil and uh, like ink markers after that metallic ink markers. And so that's very cool. The, the one that you're referenced with Orluvac at the end of the world, um, that's done by an Italian artist and that's all pen and watercolor. It's cool. The, the cover and that art, it's just so evocative and colorful, which I feel like this book, it has a very colorful feel to it of, it's like there's this blank canvas of like Arctic snow and night sky. That's what I imagined in like the background, but then the characters and the Aurora and the flames, all this bring this like color to that blank canvas. And I think the artwork does a really good job of conveying the sort of color you feel when reading the book. So if I've, I, re, I really want to get a hard copy of it. If you can't get a hard copy, get the ebook for sure. Cause then you'll get all that artwork in it too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if nothing else, then at least, you know, hit up my website and check out the art for any of the yeah. listeners. And yeah, I think we're, we're about wrapped up. So why don't you um, let people know how to, how to find you, contact you? What other, is there any other projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I mean, my website is BennyHenricks.com, which unfortunately nobody can spell my last name, but... Uh, <laughs> Two I's, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no E's, no D's. It's, there's no K's. Yeah, X's. it's yeah it's, it's a difficult uh, <laughs> eight letters to get out but um <laughs> yeah and i have a my instagram is eulogy of sanity which you read um the oneronauts and that's the name of the ice cream shop in yeah in that book <laughs> so so that's that's what that is and um i guess i have a, an author facebook which i uh am not very stalwart on maintaining but uh you know, I'll take all of the follows that that you throw at me. And so I have another book that is coming out in like November, December. Haven't exactly decided yet. And it is a short story collection of satire stories about the higher education system of that college. It's called The Jewel of Tusco. And there are five short stories in there. Some of them are actually novelette length, but and so each of each 
each of the five tackles a different topic that I dislike about higher education and kind of satirizes <laughs> it. And it's it's in a fantasy setting. So you yeah. know, if that sounds interesting to you, it's it's a completely different speed than Orlenbach. There's a lot more humor in there than Orlenbach probably has like one joke in the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a very somber book. Um but uh yeah so there's that and then I am currently working my my new project and unfortunately when you have a desk job writing is just a slow time because you have to yeah. work most of your life but so in my you know off moments I'm putting time into a new project that's a progression fantasy yeah I, I don't know how many progression fantasy novels you've read Cradle is like the biggest one. Oh, the Will White. Yeah. yeah. Is that does that mean the same thing as Lit RPG or are the no 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 Lit RPG is different, and I hope that people don't hate me when I say this, but almost every single Lit RPG I've read is worse than most progression fantasy that I've read. So, I've I haven't read Will White. My mom has, and a couple of my friends have, and I've heard people refer to it as Lit RPG, but that's that's honestly my only. Um, a reference for the cradle books or lit rpg so yeah yeah <laughs> no well, <worries. laughs> so progression fantasy can have a lot of different forms but at least from what i've noticed lit rpg generally they it's kind of like progression but everything is just attached to like a stat number and okay. what i've found is that it, it's kind of hard to emotionally identify with a stat number um whereas progression and, or, or progression fantasy is more just people kind of leveling up in a more continuous in a, manner instead well, of just in a more like, like a relatable, like visceral manner. Like I found that in a lot of lit RPG, you know, they'll be like my strength or my agility is now 38, but you don't really see that reflected a ton in the actual novel. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's just a little hard. Whereas a lot of the time in progression fantasy, it's like, Oh, I gained these exact abilities and, you know, here's mm -hmm. me using them. So, okay, but cool. Of course, I have not read every lit RPG book. So, yeah. Was, uh, so, Cradle would be progression fantasy, you're saying? Right. Uh, Mother okay. of Learning is another very popular progression fantasy. I, I recommend on that one. So, what is yeah. the, the name of this project you're working on? Um, you have a name I don't for actually it yet? have a name for it yet, but uh, pretty excited about it. It's It has to do with like everybody has these individual satellites and they use those to work magic and have you ever played the game 2048 yeah it's like the tiles the little and phone like game, yeah. together it's like two plus two is four or four plus four is you know so you kind of do that with these satellites and just get them bigger and you know each evolution has specific powers associated with it and and the the main character lives on this moon of a planet that has like 40 moons. And so there's all this moon hopping. And so it's like, but it, it's definitely fantasy, but it's a little sci-fi esque. Yeah. And the book starts off with, he gets roped into a piracy MLM and goes on a raid <laughs> to a different moon. <laughs> so Gotta love the MLMs. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, well, I'm excited for that. I think, for those of you that are listening, check out Orlovak. It's such such an interesting world. Like the, the world building is so creative. And as 
I mean, as you can see from the next project he's working on, again, the creativity is just there. Uh, but yeah, I think that that about wraps it up for this episode. Um, if you haven't already, subscribe to Phantology. Um, you can find links to our Discord below. We love to be talking and debating things on the Discord. And check out Orluvok. Thanks, guys. See ya. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem.